From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. When a city gets to be into food, when a city becomes enamored with food and becomes a kind of restaurant epicenter, you can hear the buzz and you can you can hear it when you walk into a supermarket, if you're on the tube, if you're at a coffee shop, you hear people talking about food, you hear them talk about restaurants, you look into restaurant windows and you see a certain energy. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Alexandra Cropinsano. Now, Alexandra joined us to talk about her latest cookbook, Eat Cook LA, Recipes from the City of Angels. This is an exploration of Los Angeles' booming restaurant scene, with recipes and profiles of the city's eateries, coffee shops, juice bars, food trucks, and more. So Alexandra is a screenwriter and food columnist who has penned a column in the Wall Street Journal for about eight years now. She's also the recipient of the MFK Fisher Award for Distinguished Writing from the James Beard Foundation, and she previously wrote the London Cookbook, Recipes from the Restaurants, Cafes, and Hole-in-the-Wall Gems of a Modern City. So in Eat Cook LA, Alexandra writes that Los Angeles is a city that has, quote, long been almost suspicious of food, and she says with a bad case of culinary insecurity. But today, she writes, the city of angels is now sparkling with culinary star dust. It has, she says, in a remarkably short time, transformed itself into the most exciting food city in the United States. So in today's show, we're talking with Alexandra about just that, the transformation of LA's dining scene, including the roles that Hollywood and the streaming industry have played, as well as the rise of farmers markets and juice bars. We're also talking about the role that cookbooks and writers, including her journalist mother, have had on Alexandra's career. And of course, we're playing a game. We've got a little LA chef-themed game at the end of the show, so stick around. Plus, we've got two recipes from Eat Cook LA. We've got a spicy lamb breast from Casilla in Santa Monica, and a pomegranate couscous from Manhattan Beach Post. And we're giving away a copy of Eat Cook LA to one lucky Salt and Spine listener, so make sure you're following us on Instagram for that. Also, later in this show, we're checking in on this month's online cookbook club selections, and of course, we're stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack. Wow, all of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Alexandra Cropinsano joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Alexandra. How are you? Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Good. We're so glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. We're here to talk about your second cookbook, Eat Cook LA. So we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to start by talking about how you got into food writing and now producing a couple of cookbooks. So I thought we'd start sort of career wise, maybe and bring in some other influences as they make sense. Because you actually originally went to school and to study film. Uh, yes, I actually went and got a MFA in film directing at NYU. And when I was finishing my thesis project, and this was, this dates me, but it was not in the days of like shooting on your iPhone and for $5,000. Sure. It was a little more expensive than that. Right. And I needed a job and I went to work as a field producer for uh, Martha Stewart. Okay. And as a field producer, I really got to travel all over the world with her and do these one hour specials on food. But I also got to edit in the studio and the studio contained one of the most extraordinary cookbook collections ever. I can imagine. So when everybody else was, you know, taking a coffee break, I would go and I would just devour whatever books I could find. Yes. 
Uh, so that was, that was my first, and I, and I did start producing a lot of food episodes for her as well. And then I wrote for the studios, wrote for Fox Searchlight, for Fine Line, New Line, Miramax, Participant. Writing um, what kinds of things? Writing, writing feature screenplays. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was really, I was writing for the studios and in 2007, the Writers Guild went on strike. Right. And I had also just given birth to our son, Garrick. Okay. And I knew that I wanted to take some time off. The Writers Guild forced, kind of forced me to take some real time off. Sure. Um, but I've always, I've always believed that writing is a bit of a muscle. And if you don't write as a writer, if you let too much time go by, it naturally gets harder, but it also doesn't feel right. Like we're, you know, I, I need to write every day. Yeah. Uh, so I thought about what I was going to do and I've always had such a passion for food. I wrote to Amanda Hesser, who was mm-hmm. then editing the food section of the New York Times magazine. Right. And I said, may I write an article about Patricia Wells? Sure. And she said, sure. And I said, I, I, you know, I know I've never written an article before. You might not publish this, but let me, let me give it a go. And she was, she was completely game. Uh, I wrote it, she loved it, and published it, and then that began kind of 18 months of, of writing for the New York Times Magazine on food, and it was so much fun, and uh, by then the Writers Guild strike was over, Okay. but I was really enjoying myself, and then Ruth Reichel asked me to write several pieces for Gourmet, okay. which was such an enormous pleasure, Right. and when that folded, I remember the morning uh, still with a sunken heart. I ended up moving on and writing a food column for the Wall Street Journal, which sure. I've had for eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a moment of um, questioning, any looking back? Like after after you wrote that first piece for the New York Times Magazine and you're sort of becoming more of a food writer versus right. a, a um, television or film writer, mm-hmm. was there a moment of like, I should go back to the to the video work of the, of or the, script or writing? the script writing? You know, I am actually doing that now you are? as okay. well. Partly because my son is in middle school and, and he's old enough that my day doesn't really end at two or three anymore. Got it, yeah. But, you know, time goes by quickly. And I, I've i always known, I think, that I would write a book and I've always known that food would be part of what I do. I spent okay. a big chunk of my childhood in Paris. Right. I used to devour cookbooks. I started cooking when I was really young. I ate really well. My mother's an extraordinary cook. It felt very natural. And then I I think one of the things that happened is that while I was writing the Wall Street Journal column, I was, you know, going back to London quite a bit, where I had sure. actually done a lot of screenwriting, but also lived once. And I started to get very excited about what was going on in the food world there. Yeah. And that really was the moment when I thought, wait a second, there is a book in here. And little did I know <laughs> that I would, <laughs> that I would then embark on a second one very quickly and how much work they are. But it really was the subject that made me say, Okay, yes, I'm going to do this as a book. Yeah. And and your two cookbooks both have similar subjects in that they're both focused on cities. So I want to talk about that in a minute. But you brought up your mother yeah. and the, you noted she's a great cook. And the influence, so for folks who may not know, your mother is Jane Kramer, who has written extensively for The New Yorker and also has written many pieces that involve food or food mm-hmm. personalities. There's like a clear through line there. So what sort of influence did that have on you as you were growing up, both like that exposure to good cooking and food, but also sort of living in a house of writers? I would say two things. My mother used to edit my school papers okay. with a red felt tip pen. <laughs> yes. And she would do it in the classic New Yorker copyright style. Okay. So there were all, you know, there'd be all these squiggles on it. Right. And I learned everything I know from that. 
I learned everything I know from her and I learned to be exacting. And I think if anything, I have trouble now with, with things like emails and, and texts because I'm so trained to write grammatically. Right. (laughs) To not, to not end everything with an exclamation mark. So I really did. I learned that there. I think two things had a, had a real profound influence on, on the food side. One was, you know, we spent pretty much every summer of my life abroad, right. um, many, many, many summers in Italy. And, and then when I was 10, we moved to Paris and that opened up a whole other culinary world. Yeah. And my memories of living in Paris are so associated with taste that it, it left an indelible memory. I mean, I mean, people talk about Paris and nostalgia, right. but if you've actually lived there as a child, it just doubles the impact of that. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was hugely important. And at that point, the dollar was, was actually quite strong. And, and as a child of a journalist and a anthropologist, we were able to eat pretty much everywhere, which is not always the case. Sure. And, uh, so it was an incredible, incredible luxury. And growing up with writers, I mean, I don't, I didn't know a lot of people who hadn't written books. Okay. Right. And I think sometimes I'm surprised when somebody actually is excited that I wrote a book. Right. Because to me, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily feel like an achievement. It feels like what, what everybody does. Yeah. It feels like a thing yeah. people do. Yes. yes. <laughs> Did you ever have, um, thoughts when you were growing up that you didn't want to follow that path, which I think is common for many of us with oh, our parents? I, I definitely did not want to be a writer. And I knew that I wanted to write at times, but for my own pleasure. Okay. And, I didn't want to write really because writers never go on vacation. And when you're a child of two writers, you know that your parents are, even if you're traveling and touring a new country or even on the beach, you know, there's always pen and paper. There's always notes to be taken there. I can always tell when my mother would be talking to somebody and suddenly she'd shift into kind of an interview question. You know, work was always ever present, which isn't right. to say that she was not a hundred percent a mom to me because she was, but I really was aware that it's something you don't stop. It's not a nine to five job. And I thought, I'm going to do something that has much more clearly defined <laughs> boundaries and time limits. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so I, of course, ended up uh, doing exactly what I said I would never do. Right. And producing a cookbook, as we all know, is a nine to five job. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Not. Yeah. So I think it is so interesting. And you alluded to this a little bit that your two cookbooks have been focused on two different cities, London and Los Angeles. And I believe I'm right that you weren't living in either of them at the time you decided to pursue both of these books. You'd spent time in in both London and in Los Angeles before tackling each of these, but you weren't a resident. You weren't a native of either of these places. What benefit did that give you to sort of jump in at this moment that you sort of identify in both cities feels like they're on the cusp of a culinary sort of moment? Exactly. So I don't think I would have written either of these books had I lived in either of the cities full time. Likewise, they're both cities that I know incredibly well and travel to all the time. London, I lived in as a child and briefly. And then when we moved to France, I was, I went back and forth so frequently. And then I worked there in the film world as well. What struck me about both cities was really that as a, as a journalist, as a writer, as an observer, and as somebody who loves to taste good food, I was able to notice profound change in those cities. And I think not being a resident, but kind of coming back, I would say definitely every three months over okay. the period of decades and really spending time and 
having many, many friends in both places and feeling at home and, and having my favorite spots, but having time to explore. Sure. I was able from a slight remove to see the patterns of change and also to, to hear the change of tenor in the, in the city's voice. Because I think when a, when a city gets to, gets to be into food, when the city becomes enamored with food and becomes a kind of restaurant epicenter, you can hear the buzz and you can, you can hear it when you walk into a supermarket. If you're on the tube, if you're at a coffee shop, you hear people talking about food. You hear them talk about restaurants. You look into restaurant windows and you see a certain energy, the people who are eating. Yeah. It's very, it's something that you observe when you, I think when you go to a place. But, but I would say what also really interested me was the, was the who, how, why, and where of that change. So I, you know, when I was researching London and I started to talk to chefs, the thing that most struck me was that almost every chef I talked to had at least spent a little bit of time working for Ruthie Rogers and Rose Gray at the River Cafe right. or for Fergus Henderson at St. John. Sure. Maybe if they were a little older, Terence Conran. And that there really was a kind of a family tree that, you know, Otto Lenge was part of and mm. Jamie Oliver was part of. But that I was starting to see patterns and to see a tree and to see the connections between people and to be able to kind of look at the map of a city as a whole from a slightly outside perspective. Yeah. And with Los Angeles, it was also a very similar thing as a city that I am just intimately acquainted with and have, and have spent so much time in. And I began to also kind of feel that buzz in a very similar way to London, but for very different reasons. Sure. And then I began to hear also that the chefs I talked to had worked for Suzanne Gone, they'd worked mm. for Nancy Silverton. There was also that sense of kind of mentors at the top of a family tree. Right. Who were very, very important. And that, that got me interested because as a yeah. writer, if there's change, there's a story, right? So what's the story? And if there's a story, then who's making it? I, I read as I was preparing for this interview that you uh, reflected on something you were always told when you were in film school, which is to write what you know. And you sort of have flipped that on your head in, in many ways in your life and your work, mm -hmm. but in particular with these two books. And so I think you do really have that advantage of being able to look a little bit from an outsider's perspective as someone who's not living in these places at the time you're writing about them. But I imagine there are challenges to producing a book like Eat Cook LA when you're mm -hmm. not living in LA and, and when you're sort of trying to pull together these recipes. What was the process like then of actually putting this book together and trying to bring what you were seeing taking place in the LA dining scene comprehensively into a book well i'll start i'll start with the hardest part okay okay there was there was one uh really difficult part uh the my last research trip was the week in which la was pretty much engulfed in flame okay and uh and it was heartbreaking and there was smoke all over and you couldn't get from the east side to the west side yeah uh and it was my last it was my, i knew it i kind of scheduled it as my last research trip so there there were certainly times like that where i thought oh my gosh if i only lived here it would be so much easier but for the most part you know i i really followed a, a pattern i think that i had done also with london was i first i first emailed all of my friends who love food and pretty much everybody I knew who lived in LA who loved food. Sure. And I said the same thing, which is, you know, what are your five favorite restaurants? What are your five favorite dishes in that restaurant? Would, you know, would you put me in touch with five of your favorite foodie friends? Right. And, 
And I just got this outpouring, or I should say inpouring, <laughs> of, sure. of incredible emails yeah. and with people just going on about the, the certain dishes and restaurants and why they liked things. And it was the same thing that happened in London. And it didn't matter if they were, you know, running studios or, you know, driving an Uber. There was that massive excitement. So I, that was my research process really began that way. And I knew some of the places that I was certainly going to include, but I wanted to make sure that I was not missing things and also that I was really pinpointing the rest, the actual dishes at places that had a kind of cult following. And uh, that was the initial approach. And then it was really, it was making very specific trips because Los Angeles is so huge that I would, you know, I'd go stay in a certain part of town and I would do, you know, six days of intense work, meeting chefs, trying things, talking about recipes, and then going back and testing and testing and testing and testing and calling and emailing. And the process that was, is always most fun to me is, is not just the process of discovery, which was definitely different for LA because it's not a walking city than it was for London, but it's the conversations with chefs. It's sure. seeing them get excited, trying to figure out why they're excited about something, whether it's the city or, you know, a bergamot. And that's the fun part. Yeah. Now we talked a little bit about mm-hmm. some of the chefs who are pe- featured yeah. here. Are you alluded to them rather? We haven't talked about them much, yeah. but folks like Suzanne Goen and Nancy mm-hmm. Silverton. You also, in addition to sort of painting this family tree, to borrow your metaphor um, of the L.A. dining scene, point to some trends that sort of pushed the L.A. dining scene to where it is today. A couple that you note are farmer's markets and juicing. Can you talk about some of those things that you saw taking place, I guess, sort of independent of the restaurants, but in concert with this larger food picture? Yes. So people do think I'm crazy when I'm saying (laughs) that juicing actually had a, you know, a a good culinary impact on the city. But uh, one of the things that was, has really been true in LA in the last, you know, 15 years, obviously the rise in farmer's markets and the fact that there is extraordinary produce. Yeah. And, you know, listen, I, from a slightly satirical bent, it did become very chic sure. to, you know, to get dressed up in your most casual clothes and carry your basket and, and pick beautiful fruits and vegetables and flowers and, and bring them home in a tote bag, you know. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, uh, what I think that moment did for LA was LA had really to me been, and I, I should point out here that I'm, that the outskirts of LA where there's always been extraordinary immigrant cuisine is not right. the focus of this book. Right. Um, because I think, I think that subject, which was more Jonathan Gold's territory mm-hmm. deserves its own book. Um, by did you grapple who, with that early on? I did. You know, I really did because, you know, what's, what has been exciting about the food world in, in Los Angeles has always been on the outskirts of the city. Yeah. But the incredible change that I was seeing was happening in slightly, you know, I guess in, in well-heeled places that were, were also casual and, but, but more central. And I'll, I'll talk about how, how I kind of got to that in a second. Uh-huh. I also really believe that, you know, I have my expertise and I'm not an expert at making homemade ramen or homemade dumplings or right. homemade tortillas. And I think it's better to leave that to those who, are really good at. Yeah. But going back, so yes, so one of the things that struck me with the, with the farmers markets was that for certainly the entertainment industry, beauty has obviously been one of the prime commodities in, in Los Angeles. And with that became, I think, an idea that food was a foe, not a friend. 
when I used to go out to dinner in LA 15 years ago, you know, everybody was on the Atkins diet and you'd uh -huh. come in and you get a steak and steamed spinach right. with maybe a little lemon juice, but definitely no olive oil, definitely no bread, definitely no, but you know, nothing else. Right. And one thing that happened with the rise of the farmer's markets and the juicing culture was that at least it opened up this idea that food is actually a friend and it's not something to be afraid of. And that I think really did have a massive impact. Um, the other thing with juicing was every juicing company, because so many of them opened up at the same time, had to start out doing their competition. So that instead of just putting three or four fruits in a blender, suddenly they were turning them into tonics and elixirs, and they were adding strong bursts of, you know, of ginger, of, of turmeric, of Sichuan peppercorns, of various peppers, um, jalapeno peppers, all sorts of things to, to really to, to add punches of flavor. And that did have an impact because it opened up, I think, a certain interest in Middle Eastern flavors, a certain interest in Indian flavors, actually. Um, I remember there was a juice I had at Moon Juice that was so good that I kind of thought if you, if you heated this up at night, you could pretend it was a French velouté. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, obviously, Amanda Chantal Bacon was actually worked for Suzanne Gohn and, and was a trained chef. But I think the idea of food as being nourishing as opposed to something you had to avoid was very poignant there. Yeah. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Alexandra Cropinsano, author of Eat Cook LA. So happy September. I hope you enjoyed your Labor Day weekend. And it's a whole new month full of cookbooks. Fall releases are here. And one of my favorite ways to explore new cookbooks is with online cookbook clubs. Now, every month we share a list online of which books some of the top clubs are featuring. And I want to highlight a few for you now. So the Tasting Table Cookbook Club is cooking through two books from Salt and Spine Friends this September. My Mexico City Kitchen by Gabriela Camara and Where Cooking Begins by Bon Appetit's Carla Lally Music. Plus, two more Salt and Spine guests are the stars of the Eat Your Books Cookbook Club, Nas Dravian's Bottom of the Pot, and Anna Francis Gass's Heirloom Kitchen. And our friend Allison Roman's first cookbook, Dining In, is the featured selection for the Get Cooking Cookbook Club on Instagram. You can find our conversations with Gabriella, Carla, Nas, Anna, and Allison in the Salt and Spine archives. And that's just a quick peek at what's cooking this month. You can find more clubs and selections and how to join them on our website, saltandspine.com, and stay tuned as we check in on some of our favorite clubs later this month. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson, to Samin Nostrat and Alison Roman, to today's guest, Alexandra Cropinsano, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your and my favorite cookbook authors. Plus, we're publishing recipes, author excerpts, holding cookbook giveaways, and so much more. And I love telling the stories behind cookbooks. And if you love our show, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. You'll have access to lots of perks from Salt and Spine bookmarks to t-shirts to cookbooks and more. And you know, this podcast is really only possible because of listeners like you. And I can't thank you enough for listening and for your support. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash salt and spine. Now back to our conversation with Alexandra Cropinsano, author of Eat Cook LA, Recipes from the City of Angels. 
The other reasons why I felt that LA's really started to become a, a serious food city and a serious restaurant capital also happened after 2008 mm -hmm. with what I felt was a, a breakdown of the studio system. And I, I think that happened for two reasons. One is streaming. Right. Um, Change the economics of the movie and, and television industry. Obviously. Streaming meaning like Netflix, Hulu, mm -hmm. streaming Absolutely. services. Yeah. And the other was the proliferation of writers' rooms across the city. So as television gained prominence, writers didn't want to necessarily go into a studio to write. If they all lived on the east side, maybe they would, you know, go to a restaurant and start the morning together and go off to a writer's room somewhere nearby. Right. Along with that, internet startups. And then this incredible, uh, incredible surge in the art market there. And I do believe that where there's good art, there's good food. So suddenly museums were opening up downtown. A different kind of tourist was coming, tourists who were art collectors or who were museum goers around those places opened up some fantastic restaurants, coffee shops, bars, everything. Yeah. But I think that I think in geographically, the breakdown of the studio system after 2008 mattered also because those studios really were like little fiefdoms. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very, it was very much of a feudal system, you'd have the studio, and it was almost like it is kind of a walled community, actually. Right. And it would have a commissary, and there'd be some restaurants nearby. And depending where you were in the pecking order, you went to X, Y, or Z restaurant, and everything was focused on that one industry. And as that opened up, suddenly these restaurants could spread out through the city into areas that were less expensive. Chefs didn't have to worry about rents in quite the same way. They could also be more casual. They weren't catering to people in suits. They were catering to people in flip-flops right. <laughs> who wanted to linger. It, it really transformed what it meant to have a successful restaurant in the city. Yeah. The other side of that that was really interesting to yeah. me to think about is the, I think the aspect of LA dining culture earlier on that was very focused on restaurants as a place to see others and to be seen yourself and food was maybe not so much the focus, right? The, the dining culture. And so I think as you talk about like the evolution of Hollywood, right? And the, not only the geographic way that the studios have, um, spread across the city, but also sort of the shifting culture in Hollywood. I think absolutely. And I think, I think Suzanne Gone actually is a huge part of that because okay. her food, when she opened Luke, people really began to, to talk about food in a way that they had, they had talked about Companile, Nancy Silverton's place with Mark Beale. And before right. that, they had talked about Wolfgang Puck, but, but Wolfgang's restaurants were, were really places where you went to see and be seen and, and everybody would know that you had a reservation and where your table was. So it, right. it definitely was part of that. Um, Campanile, I think, and, and Luke, uh, were the two places where people really went to eat. Yes. <laughs> they went, they went <laughs> because the food was outstanding and it was generous and it was bold and it was bountiful. It was also simple. It was a, those are pared down Mediterranean foods. So I think that, I think that definitely shifted. And I think the new, the new luxury is now, which is something that's not unique to LA, but it is having, you know, ceremonial grade matcha in a beautiful handmade cup as right. opposed to, you know, a martini next to a movie star's table. Sure. And that to me is, it's as much of a cliche perhaps, but it is also a lot easier to run a restaurant that way. Yeah. 
We're we're back again to Nancy Silverton and Susan Goen, and I'm thinking again about this family tree metaphor that Mm -hmm. you painted for us a second ago, both in LA and in London, and I'm thinking we're here in the Bay Area, and we have Alice Waters, and obviously many restaurants in the Bay Area whose chefs have come from the Chez Panisse sort of family tree. Since you've studied a couple cities and their culinary scenes and written books on them, I'm wondering how important do you think that is to the changing of a city's food scene, sort of that family tree because we do really see traces and trails of this sort of method of cooking in a lot of these chefs who work at places like Luke and then go on to start restaurants of their own, for instance. I think it's very important. And what struck me with with all of these people is that they were all great teachers. Uh-huh. And and that to me is what made the difference. I mean, with the exception of, of Fergus Henderson, you know, we're talking about women, um, right. mothers, Right. Uh, different kind of kitchen, different kind of ambience in the restaurant. You know, I could, I would watch Ruthie Rogers in London at the River Cafe, so exacting. But if she wanted a cook to change what they were doing, she would lightly touch them on the shoulder and show them. And it was a, it was a very quiet, nurturing, uh, very precise, but loving, kind of way of teaching. Yeah. Um, all of these people, Suzanne, Nancy, incredibly generous, absolutely a teacher. These are women who are, are not competitive. They want that next generation to thrive. They are ready to let people spread their wings. I think it is that aspect of mentorship. You know, the classic model of doing stage, I think, particularly in France, was, you know, you could spend, and I've had friends who've done this, uh-huh. six months chopping onions, right? you know, at, at a major restaurant. Right. And then <laughs> maybe you get to do another six months with carrots. Yeah. But that is, that's learning so slowly. Yeah. And in such a constricted way that, that for, for chefs to be, for young chefs to be given the opportunity to move around a restaurant and have somebody mentoring them does mean that then they are ready to embark on a different sort of career. They're empowered in a different way. Yeah, that's such a great observation. I read that you collected somewhere like 200 recipes for this book and had to narrow it down to 100. Way more. Way more than 200. Okay. And and for folks who haven't looked at the book yet, obviously, we're talking about recipes from restaurants. But you note early on in the book that you wanted these to be very accessible to you. And you actually note that you had to leave out some restaurants that are almost too producing food that's almost too hard to replicate at home. How important was that accessibility for home cooks? component to you? And how did you sort of weave that into your process? Hugely. I did not want to write a chefy book. Uh-huh. I did not want to write a book of, of restauranty dishes. I wanted to write a book that had working recipes that anybody could master. And therefore, I didn't want a recipe that needed to be dumbed down. I want I want people to be able to do exactly what the chef does and not a kind of simplified, you know, Restaurant for Dummies version. Right. So that was enormously important, but it also co- it also matched really what I was looking at, which is that the rise in a certain kind of food in Los Angeles is a food that is actually not that difficult to make. Yeah. Right. So it's I would not have tackled this book if it was an extraordinarily complex way of cooking. Um, that said, you know I didn't even think about including, say, the, you know, the top 20 super expensive high-end right. restaurants in the city, because I, 
that's discouraging and and it's not it's not what the city is about for most people or for me and at the same time you're not like skimping on flavor i mean the first recipe in the book is cornmeal pancakes with turmeric yuzu butter which are ingredients that are becoming more accessible you can find yuzu places that you couldn't before mm-hmm. even just a year or two ago um so it is really playing on a lot of these unique flavors that la chefs are working with but making it super accessible for home cooks yes and you can make those pancakes and just put a little maple syrup on them as sure. well yes so i think uh although you the, the turmeric user butter sounds incredible it is really so good. <laughs> it's really <laughs> seek good. out the user if you can <laughs> exactly no it is really good i think one of the things with a lot of the recipes too is that they're based on you know there certainly is a fair amount of meat in the book but food in la tends to be a little bit more vegetable focused right and so there's a lot of layering of of flavors textures there are a lot of herbs there are even a lot of flowers sometimes those flowers are optional yeah. Not all of us grow cilantro flowers, right? right. So um, <laughs> right. it's it's lovely if we do. But they're substitutions. They're, it's an easy way of... it's. A, I don't want to say it's an easy way of cooking. It is an easy way of cooking, but it's there's also an ease to cooking food like that, which yeah. is not having to be too worried about, you know, if you... Or as my mother says, if you like something a lot, just add a little bit more of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which I love that piece mm-hmm. of advice. Did cookbooks play a role in your life when you were growing up? We talked a little bit about how you're living all over Europe as a child. Your mom is writing for The New Yorker and wonderful cook. Like, What role did cookbooks themselves play? Were they around? Yes. Yeah. So my mother has a, a big cookbook collection okay. um, and she really does cook from the book, Okay. she would say. Uh-huh. Although when you look at her books, you see that they're all annotated. Uh, (laughs) but, but yes, I definitely, definitely grew up with, with cookbooks. And I think there were a couple books that I remember being given when I was really little. Okay. And some of them I, I really wish I still had, but you know, those early time life series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember my horseback riding teacher's mother had us, had the whole collection Uh and she knew I loved chocolate. And one day she gave me the one from Vienna, which had all the great coffee cakes. Right. You know, I have, I have very strong memories of, of cookbooks. And I think as somebody who traveled so often, I bringing a, bringing something, bringing a momentum of a place, memento was important. And oftentimes that did. I mean, I still have a book on Norman cuisine from Normandy that I must have gotten when I was 11. That's awesome. Yeah. Are there authors or books? I mean, you mentioned one that's particularly meaningful to you, but are there authors, cookbook authors, or specific cookbooks that have been very important to you in your career? Nigel Slater. Uh huh. So yep. I, I mean, I keep, let's just say this, I, I keep copies of Nigel Slater by my bed, <laughs> yeah. essentially. And they're I, wonderful I, reading. They're, he's such a beautiful writer. Yeah. I mean, there are times when, you know, right before bed, I'll just read a page on blackberries. Right. You know, and it is, it's inspiring. It's simple. I can't wait for his new books. But I love his aesthetic. I love the attention to detail. Um, like so many people, I think Otto Lenke has had a huge impact yeah. on me. But I, but I don't necessarily use his cookbooks all the time as much as I use them to reflect on flavor. Sure. Um, Richard Olney, mm-hmm. Lulu in Provence. Or, yes. Um, absolutely fantastic book for me. Um, Simka's Cuisine. The, and I, of course, I loved Bistro Cooking and A Food Lover's Guide to Paris. I really did. Uh, there's, let's just say there's no surprise that I wrote my first article on Patricia Wells. Right. Uh, and her approach 
in in both of those books to to kind of looking at a city and curating a list of recipes obviously has had a an impact on me yeah so we always end with a little game yeah. so i thought we'd stay right on theme with okay. with your latest book eat cook la and we have these fun little cards that we use that have secret ingredients on them so i thought i'd give you a few of the most well-known la chefs most of whom i think all of whom are featured in your book and pretend they're coming over for dinner. You're having a dinner party. The chef is coming over, and you're going to draw some uh, ingredients from our deck here and see what you might whip up for them at the dinner party you're hosting. And the first one we'll do is Wolfgang. So Wolfgang Puck, obviously, who sort of started uh, many of the conversations around the L.A. dining scene with Spago. He's coming to dinner at your house. What do you have in your fridge slash pantry so I went, I went for flavor. Okay. And I have here honey, nutmeg, vanilla, ginger, and cinnamon. Okay. Wow. I'm, I'm feeling that. That's a good combo. <laughs> that is actually a, a pretty fantastic limitless combination. Um, I think we're talking dessert here. Uh huh. And I happen to love, I love honey and I love honey pies. And one of the things I like about pies recently is making pies without crust. Okay. Also making quiche without crust. Uh-huh. Uh, so making something that's a little bit lighter. And what I would want to do here is I would want to make a honey pie, mm. but quite strongly infused with flavors of ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, and vanilla. Okay. And maybe let's, let's say for the vanilla, scraping the beans and being able to see the little black flecks. Definitely. Yeah. And, um, and then with the ginger, what I'd also like to do besides putting it in the pie is I would love to crystallize a little bit of it and mince it and scatter it over the top just so that there's a little bit of, of texture and crunch in there. Sounds delicious. I think Wolfgang would love it. <laughs> Wolfgang may or may not love it. I think he <laughs> would. He, it's hard not to love a honey pie, right? Yeah. Okay, let's do another round. Let's say you're having Nancy Silverton over. Of course, folks know Nancy Silverton is behind Osteria Matza, Pizzeria Matza. So maybe we're serving something Italian-inspired. Maybe it's got some bread involved, since we know she's an excellent baker. So I don't know if this is exactly what Nancy would love. But Nancy definitely loves pasta. Mm -hmm. And I have here cinnamon, onion, ground beef, tomato, and mint. And what I would love to do with that is do a cinnamon-scented bolognese. So I would, obviously, I'd saute the onions first. Um, I would use wonderful San Marzano canned tomatoes. I would do the slightly cinnamon-scented ground beef. And I would, there's no feta here, but I would probably top the dish instead of with parmesan with a little bit of feta uh-huh. and some of the mint uh, some of the mint for which I do mm. have a card. Yes, some fresh mint. Yes, and that do a, just a, a slightly middle eastern take on on a classic uh bolognese sauce. Yeah, sounds delicious. I think she'd love it. She'd love that actually. Let's yeah. bring in someone who we haven't talked about yet, Jessica Coslow, who okay. I think is a well-known chef. She's the the chef behind Squirrel. So well-known for delicious toasts, well-known for delicious grain bowls. You know, one of the things that I love at Squirrel is that Jessica makes these great tonics. So she makes a yeah. great 
turmeric tonic, for example, and she makes a toddy, which I include in the book, which is great because you can spike it if you want or not. Uh huh. But looking at this and thinking that it's Jessica and breakfast, I am going to go with honey, lemon, ginger, and Sichuan peppercorns mm. and, and make a tea. Okay. And I, you know, I recently, I wish I had some lemongrass. I started doing this recently. I started adding really good Sichuan peppercorns to my uh, turmeric and ginger tea. And I usually a use whole? a fresh turmeric. You add yeah, the whole peppercorn? Yeah, I'll, I'll use two or three peppercorns uh-huh. and, and just let the whole thing brew with a little lemongrass. Okay. So good in the winter. Oh, that I, sounds I love, delicious. I love such, yeah. Uh-huh. And to me, that's breakfast. Yes. Because I don't... You know, a little later you start to eat, but that first thing in the morning, now I confess usually my first thing in the morning is a shot of very strong coffee. Okay. <laughs> while, <Yes>. I'm, <laughs> while I'm getting my child into, uh, into everything he needs for school. Sure. But then by the time Jessica Coslow arrives, we can we're, have our Szechuan tea. For, exactly. Yeah. We're ready for our, our Szechuan peppercorn honey lemon ginger lemon grass yeah tea. i think she'd love it i think it'd pair wonderfully with her toasts yes, <laughs> yes i love her toast well this was so fun thank you so much alexandra i am so glad i want to play more with these yes, cards come back anytime <laughs> we'll play more I rounds will. such a pleasure thank you for having me of course thank you let's head now to omnivore books in san francisco to chat with celia sack in this week's from the vault Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm doing well. Great. So we just sat down with Alexandra Cropensano to talk about her latest cookbook, Eat Cook LA, which came after her first cookbook, All About London. Yes. And I'm hoping you have some wisdom to share with us. Well, sure. She is a great writer yes. and really, really loves to dive into deeply into whatever city she's examining. That's right. And she spoke a lot about Los Angeles and its restaurant scene, which is just incredible right now. Yeah. It's so vibrant. And I hate to say that their produce is even better than ours here in San Francisco. I was so mad when I went yeah. down there and had an avocado that was just <laughs> to right. die for. And some of the Harry's Berries strawberries that oh, are yeah. absolutely better than any I've ever had in my life. Okay. So their restaurant scene is so exciting. They've got a lot of Israeli restaurants. Uh-huh. They've got, you know, the typical ones about uh, like, like Luke that are just sort of sure. high-end wonderful that she profiles in here. Yeah. But also, Suzanne Gowen's Luke. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. But also ones from cultures that we're so unfamiliar with oftentimes uh, that are really exciting. Right. And she and I talked a lot during the interview about Jonathan Gold and mm, yeah. the the lack of him now that he's passed away. He was such an important reviewer in Los Angeles of restaurants that were off the beaten track. Yeah. And what a hole he's left. Yeah, and that's so interesting that you mentioned Jonathan Gold because he really has left this sort of huge hole in the LA food scene and bringing attention to restaurants. That's there. right. And yeah. I asked her about what is there now in its place. And she said, you know, what's sort of unfortunate, it's the Michelin Guide has started to come in and it's created competition for the first time between restaurants. She said, there never used to be that with Jonathan Gold. If he didn't like a restaurant, he just didn't review it. Yeah, And he you know, he praised each one separately for their, for what was to be lauded, but there were no stars. It wasn't, right. you know, it wasn't a star system. It wasn't about, um, who was better than, than someone else. And now Michelin Guide is doing that. And she said, it, it's really unfortunate because it's going to pit chefs against each other and restaurants against one another instead of just all being copacetic together. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we see that legacy even with Soleil Ho, the new Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle restaurant critic who also chose not to use stars. Which is, I think, absolutely healthy for yes. all of the restaurants and for the readers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Celia. Anytime. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Eat Cook LA, a recipe for spicy lamb breast from Cassia in Santa Monica, and a recipe for pomegranate couscous from Manhattan Beach Post. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks as always to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about. All right? But if you're listening to the podcast... On the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch, all right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd, all right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content, all right? Let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.